Please give Unfound Live a great review on your podcast app. On this episode, I examine the Crystal Rogers case. I talk about the discovery of Suzanne Morphew's remains. I pass along some unique observations on the Zodiac Killer. And I cover a bunch of other stuff, including answering viewers' questions. I'm Ed Dunsell, and this is Unfound Live for October 2nd, 2023. Going live right now. Hello, everybody. It is Unfound Live for October 2nd, 2023. Hope everybody's doing well. I hope uh, none of you have put out your Halloween decorations yet. Let's not get crazy, people. Uh, I, of course, don't put any decorations out for any uh, celebration, except I do have a ceramic, and it's still up, actually. I still have the ceramic Christmas tree up. That's just a year-round thing. But it is October. I see the people uh, out there preparing, already talking about Halloween, even though it's still 29 days away. But we're here into October. Still plenty hot here in Florida. I was out playing a little disc golf actually in the afternoon around 3 o'clock. And I certainly decided that I did not bring enough water with me. I was uh, really happy to finally get off the course because I was feeling it a little bit. Should have hydrated uh, a little bit more before I got out there. But um, I hadn't been out in a while, so I was like, you know, I've got to get out and throw. So I uh, hope everybody's doing well. It seems just like yesterday that we got together for the last Unfound Live. But here we are. Wherever you go, there you are. Before I get uh, too deep into this, I want to remind everybody, please give this production a thumbs up a five-star review, whatever you can do on whatever app you're listening to this on uh, as a podcast, of course, the next day, October 3rd and onward. But if you are here live tonight, do what you can to judge this live show accordingly. In addition, if you are not yet uh, maybe a member of the discussion group on Facebook, why don't you get in on that? If you have not yet liked or shared the Facebook page where you can, can watch this live show now, why don't you do that? If you're not yet a subscriber on YouTube, why don't you do that? We've got lots of things you can do here at Unfound. We are in many, many places. And if you'd like to go one step further, uh, if you are on YouTube, why don't you uh, just hit that join button below and get some things that other people do not. And as you can see for the, uh, the uh, overlay for tonight's 
live show, it's the PayPal uh, link, paypal.me forward slash unfound podcast. As you could see by the title of tonight's in the uh, title of the live show, we got a lot to talk about tonight. We're going to be talking about Crystal Rogers, the developments there. Going to talk about uh, what I, I think most people are seeing as a big surprise, the discovery of Suzanne Morphew's remains. Uh, that's certainly a surprise, maybe even a bigger surprise. Uh, her remains were found in an area that I don't know if anybody was really thinking that they'd be found there. So I'm going to do a little talking about that. And on last week's live show, I had it on the agenda to talk about the Zodiac Killer, just some of my uh, additional observations, but I did not get to that. So that is also on the plate as well. And yes, I am going to bring up uh, a couple points that I don't think anybody in the past 50 years has brought up about the Zodiac Killers. A couple things that I discovered that um, maybe should point the investigation in a new direction. And you know me, I'm not Mr. Like sensationalism. I'm not Mr. Hype guy. Um, so when I say they are things that I think are important that have never been mentioned before, you better believe it. So I'll get to that. I promise to get to that stuff. Uh, I don't want to push that off for another week. So I, I will get to it eventually. I think you'll find it very interesting. So let's see who's in here and then I will continue. Uh, nephew Charles, what's going on? Good to see you. Thank you. Everything, what's going on, Karen? Melody, not the rhythm, but the melody is with us tonight. Charlene uh, coming to us from Australia, right, Charlene? Am I correct about that? Uh, There we got some postings from me. And I brought up the Powerball, which I'll do in a second. Hello, Mark. Hello, Jasmine. Lisa. Shri, thank you uh, for moderating tonight. Shri, good to see you. Kathy, Deborah, the real, also from Australia. Twinkle is actually talking to Twinkle over Messenger today. Good to see you, though, tonight, Twinkle. Uh, Charlie says, I have a talking demonic pumping hanging on the door already. The boys, the man, nothing less. Oh, my goodness, Charlie. And uh, Facebook user, uh, remember, for all Facebook people, if you're going to comment, I cannot see who you are. So maybe you just want to tell me who you are instead of me just calling you Facebook user. Uh, Facebook user likes the blur. You know, I, I've gotten a uh, – I think the uh, the reaction to it has been the opposite. I think people like seeing, like, the video games and everything in the background, Facebook user. But – that's what we're doing now Now that I'm using uh, StreamYard. Uh, the week did fly by, Twinkle. Hello, MT. What's going on, Fairy? Hazel. What's going on, Hazel? Shelly. There's Kathy. And Lisa, thank you for the Unfound Now update episode today. It's spectacular. Thank you. I'm going to be talking about that, Lisa. A little, Maybe a little surprise for everybody. Twinkles, uh, can't wait to hear about the Zodiac Killer. And Spleen Girl, where you been, Spleen? Good to see you. Always good when Spleen makes time for the live show. Good to see you. Thanks for joining in. 
just some uh, things that are going on with me. Um, you know, I haven't played in a disc golf tournament in about a month, but starting this coming weekend, I will be playing every weekend till like the middle of November. Got a tournament at Taylor, my local course. And then I got a tournament down at Maximo at the most Southern tip of the County. And then after that, I have a tournament over, where is it? I think Cameron is having that tournament at Picnic Island, which is over uh, in Hillsborough County down uh, south of Tampa. And then two weekends in a row, I will be playing over at Cliff Stevens here in Clearwater. Um, I'll be playing, what is it, intermediate one weekend and then in the pro 50-year-olds and over division the next weekend. So, um, just, uh, like I said, about three weeks where I didn't play at all on the weekends for tournaments, but now I got a lot of tournaments going on a uh, wrapping in a row. And I think it's a very popular time of the, no, I have floral city in there somewhere that's in there somewhere as well. My buddy Dana's tournament. So somewhere in all that, there's another weekend where I'm playing there too. So. Uh, a lot of disc golf to be played in the upcoming month and a half. And hopefully I will uh, fix some problems that I had in the last couple tournaments. Uh, but this is a very popular time in Florida for tournaments because it's cooling off just a little bit. Yeah, you can play disc golf all year round here in Florida, but there aren't too many tournaments in usually like late June into July, then into early August, um, simply because it's it's kind of a little bit miserable. I don't mind it so much, but if you're a tournament director and you're going to be out there for a couple days, and it can be a little miserable. So the tournament schedule really starts heating up again, end of August, end of December. You know, then it kind of picks up um, like in February or something like that through May. So, you, like I said, June, July, usually into August, not a ton of tournaments. Once again, because it's just a little miserable, but it's getting going to get busy, busy here very quickly. Uh, as far as practicing my singing is going, it's going fantastic. In fact, Starting tomorrow, I'm moving to the next level. Uh, pretty much for the last three months or so, I've been working on my chest voice, which means when you're singing, most of that energy, you know, you can feel it down, you know, down in this upper chest area of your singing. But what maybe a lot of people who aren't into, maybe they're into music, they love music, but maybe they're not into singing or anything, is a lot of times when you're hearing a singer sing, a lot of that is a combination of both chest and what they call head voice. And that's where the the sound starts to, the, the reverberation starts to slowly move up into the throat, kind of into the upper part of the mouth. And... um it's probably the, the really understated part of singing. So, for example, if you're really into rock and roll and you're into, for example, Robert Plant or you're into a lot of these other guys who can kind of what you would call sing high, like Bruce Dickinson, like Jeff Tate from Queensryche, like uh, Sebastian Bach, 
uh, you know, from Skid Row, these guys. That's not what we would call chest voice. Really, they're singing up like in their head. And what they've done is they've mastered how to make their head voice sound like their chest voice. And they can go. That's why they have such this huge range. And so uh, the head voice part of it is what I'm going to be working on next. Been doing a lot of chest work, vo- uh, chest voice work. Now I'm going to be working more on the head voice, and then the big key is blending them, and so it's like mixed vocals. That is how you know these guys. And when you hear them talk, they don't have you know very high voices. In fact, if you've ever heard uh, Jeff Tate talk, uh, really his regular normal speaking voice is kind of very you know very down here, very low. But then when he sings, of course, he's kind of lost his voice a little bit these days. But back in the heyday, I mean, he's he's hitting these crazy high notes, even though he has naturally a very deep voice. It's because of that kind of mixed voice of chest and head, but not going so far as to get into falsetto because falsetto doesn't sound very good. So I'm going to be working on that. That is the, the next step, and that starts tomorrow. But also speaking of tomorrow, moving on to another topic, my brother and I, uh, my brother Brian, who's a big Tampa Bay Rays fan, the Rays are in the playoffs. We're going to the playoff game tomorrow. He got tickets today. So uh, the game starts at 3 o'clock tomorrow. So I will be at his house at about 1.30. And the stadium's only about 20 minutes from where he lives. It's right here in Pinellas County. At least the current stadium. They're going to be building a new stadium, I guess, eventually here. But so I'm all excited about that. I have not been to a playoff baseball game. Wow, it's been a while. We might have to go. I don't know if I, you know, the Rays have been in the playoffs since I moved here, but I've ever ever gone to one with Brian. I don't know. So if it's not since I moved to Florida, it would have to be going back. Playoff baseball, I haven't been to a playoff baseball game since the Pittsburgh Pirates in about 1991 at Three Rivers Stadium that doesn't even exist anymore. So we're going to that. I'm excited about that. And uh, so we're going to have, uh, we're going to have a good time. It'll be a pre- I think it'll pre- be a pretty good atmosphere. They usually don't get a lot of people at the regular baseball games, but surely for the playoffs, I think the, the stadium will be pretty full and I'm really looking forward to, to that uh, going down there. My brother and I and a friend of my brother's, we actually went to a baseball game uh, when the Pirates were here. Man, it seems like yesterday, but that was like in May or June or something. And uh, that was a good time too. So I'm looking forward to uh, going back again and, uh, you know, the whole atmosphere. It'll be pretty cool. Uh, Maybe uh, one more thing. I already typed it kind of in the uh, messages. That remember we got Powerball tonight. So if you haven't got your Powerball ticket, you still got time. You can listen to this YouTube live show while also driving uh, to get your Powerball. It is up to one point zero four billion dollars. Of course, if you take the lump sum, that only only ends up being like three hundred million. You know, uh, sadly, I guess if you take the law, if you take the payments. I think you get like double that, 
but most people take the lump sum because, you know, life's short. You don't know how long you're going to be here. And if you make smart investments, you can certainly make more money off your investments from something like that than taking the, the installment plan. The good thing about the installment plan, though, is for people who don't manage money very well. And uh, actually, when my brother and I went to the concert a couple of weeks ago, we actually had a deep conversation about this very topic. So uh, I, he is more of an installment plan guy. And I am more of a lump sum uh, payment guy. Uh, so either way, though, I, I think it ends up being okay. But um, that's happening tonight. Powerball over a billion dollars again. And I don't know if you've followed, been following this, but that guy who won that all by himself in California won like $2 billion. That was the gross Amount he's been going on a crazy buying spree, uh, buying up uh, mansions and everything else in California. But he's also being sued. People are claiming that he actually stole the ticket from somebody. I don't know if anybody's been following that. So there you go. Those are some of the things that are on my mind in uh, my uh, personal life. Everything's good here, and uh, you know, just. Uh, I've been working very hard, and uh, we're going to be talking about that here in a moment. So those are some of the uh, personal things going on, and um, that is about it. Let's move on. Uh, once, uh, If anybody is wants to ask me any questions tonight, I do have one question from Vicky. It's a question I've gotten quite a bit, but she is new. She's told me that she is new to Unfound. She's new to the live show. She just discovered the podcast recently, and she's asking me a question that I've gotten quite a bit, but I'm going to answer it because she's new. So I already have that question. So if anybody else asks me any, has any questions, once again, as long as it's PG rated and it's not too personal, I will answer it to the best of my ability. It does not have to do anything, have anything to do with disappearances or true crime or anything, but if anything's on your mind tonight, please type it in the chat and I will answer it. Okay, let's get started by where I usually go, and that is going to the unfound poll. Of course, this past Friday, we had the, a revisitation. You know I, I like to do those once in a while. We do not forget about anybody at Unfound. And I continue to say that I think it's the only true crime podcast where we revisit unsolved disappearances that, you know, that were covered. Of course, now we're talking six years ago, seven years ago. And this past Friday was Pamela Golden. And um, as far as these revisitations go, I, I try to do maybe at least three a year. I think we, we already have three in this year, but you might get another one before the end of the year. Hard to say right now, but I do those, uh, like I said, because I don't want those guests to ever get the idea that just because we're seven years moved on and we've covered 300 other disappearances or whatever, that their own unsolved disappearances have not been for, you know, I want them to think they've forgotten. We just moved on or anything. It's not so. Not 
true at all. In fact, all these disappearances are on my mind all the time because the way I do my work from day to day, I pretty much see in my files every one of these people's pictures every day. So we do these revisitations. I'm not sure how many other true crime shows do that. Maybe none. It's also the reason that uh, we do the update episodes that come out three times a year. And also um, it's the reason that I do the resolved episode that I did for Patreon and YouTube supporters. And then it's also the reason that today this special episode that I'll talk about a little bit more resolved for the unfound now episodes. That's all the reason that I do all of that. I know you're all very interested as well, interested in updates and resolutions and things, but it also, I just want all of those guests who um, have, you know, gave me uh, a piece of their time to do an interview for a couple hours. I want them all to know that it's, we just don't, move on. We realize that the world keeps spinning. People have their lives to lead. As a reporter, I move on to other disappearances, but that does not mean that I forget them, forget these missing people, and I don't want any of you to forget them either. So, and and it also it helps because in covering these uh, disappearances again, getting maybe a little bit of a new perspective and maybe there's new information and maybe we can, uh, maybe there's a new point of view that can come from featuring a disappearance again. So this past Friday was Pamela Golden. How that came about was that her sister out of the blue contacted me because she wanted me to talk to a very prominent person in the Arkansas missing persons community. His name is Dave Clark. And it just kind of put in my mind while I was planning to do a revisitation episode sometime late September into October. And I was like, you know what? That's a a perfect choice, especially considering if you haven't noticed We've covered so many missing men in a row going back to like the beginning of August. Thought I bet better get a, a woman in there. So Pamela's is not one that we've revisited. So that's how that happened. In fact, Dave Clark, you won't be hearing him this Friday, but you will be hearing him next Friday because uh, not only is he a prominent person in the missing persons community in Arkansas, but he lost his mother to a disappearance in 1987, and she is still missing. So that's why he will be appearing. But the Pamela Golden poll, I, I post this every week, and uh, we try to come up with a, a good question that's a little bit hard to answer. And this week it was, was Pamela Golden really going to help Tina McIntosh move the day Pamela went missing? So I guess the alternative to that was, yes, Pamela told Tina she was going to go help her, but really Pamela had something else in mind. And this is not hard to imagine because especially recently with the disappearance of a Brandon Barron, Jesse Farber, uh, some others that we've covered recently, we happen to believe that Michael Douthat 
that were these people really telling the truth before they went missing? Were they? Were or or were they lying? Were they lying because they they were manipulating people? Were they lying because they were drunk or high or something? Start to realize that a lot of these missing people tend to just doesn't seem that what they said and then what happened to them, you know, goes together. So that's why I thought this was a good question for Pamela Golden. Yes, she said she was going to have to help her friend Tina move. But was that the truth? The pro- big problem here, of course, is that Tina McIntosh never did get divorced and she never moved out, which is something also that all of you should have been contemplating while listening to the episode from this past Friday. But the answer was, was Pamela Golden really going to help Tina McIntosh move the day Pamela went missing? 50, 59%, so essentially 60% of you said no. Meaning Pamela actually had, for 60% of you, are thinking that uh, she had alternate plans. Yes, she said she was going to help Tina, but something else was on her mind. Maybe it had to do with that $12,000. Maybe it had to do with her dating uh, the friend of her son's, or maybe it had to do with some other guy or something else. But 60% of you decided that no, she was actually not going to help Tina that day. That, of course, means 40% in the poll said yes, she was going to uh, meet Tina that day. Now, in the think tank, and the think tank is a very, very, very private uh, get-together we have every Sunday evening where we get very in-depth into the disappearance for that week. And uh, Pamela's, even though it had been featured on Unfound before, we'd never had a chance to talk about it in the think tank because the think tank did not start until 2019. Um, it was somewhat the opposite. Um, that most people believe that she actually, she was going to, going to help Tina that that day or that evening. And I think a lot of those people in the think tank actually believe that, you know what, Pamela actually did make it to the Macintosh house and something happened there. I would say that that was the most popular theory in the think tank yesterday evening. However, you should know that in the blog that is private that I write at Patreon, and if you'd like to partake in that, it's patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. I came to the conclusion, yes, she was planning to go help Tina move, but myself, and I don't know if uh, Rockford is in here yet, Oh, making a comment. I don't see him here yet in the chat. I don't know if he's in here tonight or not. He and I uh, were on the same page in believing that Pamela actually got abducted in the parking lot. And that is the reason that she turned the wrong way in her truck. That somebody was waiting for her out there. So I believe she actually did intend to help Tina McIntosh move but somebody got to Pamela first. My opinion, the way we do things in the think tank, nobody's right, nobody's wrong. I try to bring a, a decently tough agenda with good points to ponder there. 
And once again, if you'd like to um, partake, it's patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast. So once again, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. The discussion group on Facebook and the think tank are at odds. It's more common than you could ever imagine. Now, in my, you know, I don't know if I want to get too deep into, I think probably uh, now that I've said what I think happened, probably most of you are, can guess who I think abducted Pamela, but maybe I'm a little more open to some other possibilities uh, as far as a person who abducted her, who are attacked her, who are kidnapped her in the parking lot that day. But I certainly believe that Pamela was going to see Tina that evening. So what is everybody um, saying in here? Hello, uh, Hazel. Um, uh, Twinkle says, can't wait to hear about the Zodiac Killer ideas. Okay, hello, Spleen. Uh, Deborah says, I've always been fascinated with the Zodiac. Hello, Suzanne. And Twinkle says that her sister is a big Rays fan. Interesting. Charlie says, go Rays. Mark says, I'm an old man. 300 million is more than enough for me. Yeah, and that's that's uh, with all the taxes already and everything already taken out too, Mark, which is nice. Um, you know, the way that works, that, uh, you know, it says 1.04 billion, but that's before taxes ta- are taken out. And if you take the lump sum... Uh, they deduct even more. Whereas if you take the payment plan, which is extended over like, I think 30 years, then you just get that 1.04 billion minus the taxes, which ends up being 600 some million. Whereas if you want all the money right away, you only get 300 million. And I know, so wow, man, you're getting ripped off. Um, The key is that if you take that 300 million, yeah, maybe you want to buy some stuff. But if you even put one third of, say you spend like 200 million of it and you still have 100 million left, if you invest that 100 million wisely, you know, diversify between stocks and bonds and real estate and whatever else, you will, you know, by the time 30 years comes up, you will have greatly surpassed whatever you would have gotten had you just gone with the steady payments. I mean, it's not even close. But you have to have that discipline. But you have to figure also in, you know, how long are you going to live? Can you do that? Do you have maybe you're afraid of people who, um, you know, are you strong enough to not just give the money away to people or suddenly people who become your friends? There's a lot of factors into that. Like I said, I think I'd take the, 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 the pain or the uh, lump sum. Uh, Haley saying, glad that Charlotte Senna was found alive. I saw that story, although I'm not very familiar with it. Uh, Shelly says, I agree with you, Ed, on this with Pamela. Okay, Shelly. Yeah. Uh, I guess what you're saying is, uh, agree with that she got, uh, abducted from the parking lot, maybe. Is that what you're saying, Shelly? It's not a, um, I have to tell you, I don't think that regarding, her disappearance, Pamela's disappearance, that that is a very popular thought. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm original and bring up, certainly not, but 
given that, I guess what I'm saying is, given that so many p- people believe that so many women have been abducted, for example, Jennifer Kessie. We, of course, know that Jody Husentrude was abducted, and maybe there are other women who we've um, – maybe Paige, of course, Paige Renkowski. We know that the abduction of women is a common thought when women go missing. I'm get, I guess I'm just then surprised it doesn't seem to be a popular idea for Pamela Golden. This is maybe just a little surprising to me. Hello, Patty. What's going on, Patty? Good to see you. Thanks for uh, tuning in tonight uh, at the 30-minute mark. Uh, Shelly, so Shelly and I are thinking the same about Pamela being abducted. Okay, thanks for letting me know, Shelly. Thank you. All right, so that is the Pamela Golden poll. And uh, very sadly, that disappearance is over 30 years old now. Wow. Okay, moving on. Uh, I need to bring it up because it came out today, uh, the special episode. Uh, I think that I I told you that this was coming, but I didn't know what day I was going to release it, mainly because I didn't know what day I was going to have the time to record it. But I did find that time. First of all, of course, I had to put all the information together because I don't do this stuff off the top of my head. So I had to go back and list all of the unfound now missing people and then figure out which ones were somewhat resolved and then figure out what I wanted to say about each of them. So that all takes time on top of doing interviews, doing the regular Friday episodes, getting prepared for this live show and everything else. And, but I, I got it done and it came out today on the regular podcast feed. So this is the first time since I'm going to say this is the first time that something has come out as a special episode on a Monday, I think since the Steve Pankey episode in November of 2019. Pretty sure. Not totally sure. Pretty sure. So it's been a while. But I wanted to do that um, because uh, for a few reasons. One, we don't forget about people we've featured on Unfound now. Number two, um, not sure despite this podcast as an audio podcast. It's very popular, but trying to get more people interested in the YouTube channel. So I thought that that would be a good way to do it. And I was also thinking, well, this is going to be like an hour and a half long. This sounds like something that actually should go just right on the regular podcast feed. Now you should know that I have done a resolution, a resolved episode for all of Unfound's disappearances as well. For the 27, I think it is, that have been somewhat resolved. So talking about Zoe Campos, Andrea Bowman, um, Alan Glasgow, Brandon Roberts, um, you know, detailing how those got resolved. Of course, the few of them kind of still somewhat, you know, the resolved, but not totally like Tom Brown. Remains were found, but still very up in the air as to what happened to him. But I put that in the somewhat – you can understand why I put that in the somewhat resolved. So uh, 
you know, category. So I've done that, but right now that is only available to Patreon and members and people who are actually um, members of this YouTube channel by hitting the join button below. But maybe I will make that public at some time in the future. So I already had experience doing that, and I thought, well, I might as well do one for all of the unfound nows as well. So that's where that came from. It ended up being like an hour and 38 minutes long. And we've covered 38, 36 disappearances on unfound now, and 18 of them are somewhat resolved. And I get into that in the special episode that came out today. So I know all of you in here are subscribed to unfound, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify, wherever else. So no, that was not a mistake. When you saw that little, whatever, if you get us on a little uh, alarm or a notice saying, wait a minute, it's Monday and I'm getting uh, a new podcast from Ed. Yes, that's what happened. That happened today. I think that was released at 3 p.m. Eastern today. And it is also a uh, a video on this uh, YouTube channel. I made it available there as well. So a little change of pace. I thought you would find it informative. Um, and I think it's important to know that these disappearances do get resolved and how they get resolved. And, you know, if some of them are just partially resolved, why is that? Why is that? And so you get to go through these 18 and hear about Linda Stoltfus and Mary Lane Carter and um, Lindsay Shobalock and Justin Siwek, these people who were featured on Unfound Not one time and then at some point their remains were found, although maybe in a few of them it's still up in the air exactly why they went missing and how they died. I think you all find that very interesting because I just don't like these things to kind of fade into history. Like to, uh, you know, once again, that's why it's called Resolved. So that came out today. If you haven't gotten to it yet, I hope you do uh, soon. It's an hour and 38 minutes. It's just me talking. There's no unfound news. There's no interviews. There's no music even. Uh, You start playing it, and it's just me. Uh, It's kind of like an update episode uh, without the music and everything. I just go right into uh, detailing the 18 that are somewhat resolved. So there you go. All right, let's move on. And what I'm going to do first, because I don't want to run out of time tonight, I, I think I'm going to have plenty of time. Uh, I want to just talk to you about um, a couple of my Zodiac insights, Zodiac killer insights. Remember, this is a guy who has not been caught yet, even though it's been 50 years. There have been uh, a very prominent movie that had Robert Downey Jr. in it that came out with David Fincher as the director. It was spectacular, I think, about 16 years ago. And you should know, I love that movie. I have it. It's on Paramount+. Plus. I have Paramount+. Plus. I've watched it several, several times, but you have to remember, some of the things that are in the movie are not how it actually happened in real life. In addition... It's clear that Robert Graysmith, who is like the main Zodiac killer, 
person who wrote the book who is featured in the movie play played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, it's obvious that, well, uh, let's just say he didn't let the facts get in the way of a good story. So there are things that are exaggerations. Not only are there things put in the movie that are just for, you know, artistic uh, license. There are things in the movie that aren't true. So if you see the movie, please be careful of that. In fact, if you Google that, there's some site out there that will compare the movie to what actually happened in real life and everything. And I will go as far as to say is I don't think that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac killer, even though he's the killer. He's the guy featured prominently in the movie. I do not believe that he killed those people. In addition, there are other people who have been listed. Uh, for example, if you just go want to just take the shortcut and go to Wikipedia, there's several other men listed. I don't think any of those guys were the Zodiac killer either. And I would compare it to like uh, the original Night Stalker. You know, there was a list of guys that investigators and amateur sleuths on what in, on the internet or even before the internet came along, they were so sure this guy did it, that guy did it. And here's what we know. When that D'Angelo guy was caught, he was never on anybody's radar at all. And if DNA had not come along, there's no way he would have ever been charged with anything regarding the original Night Stalker, even though he was the original Night Stalker and raped all those women, killed all those people. I have come to the conclusion that the Zodiac Killer is very much the same thing. And uh, what's everybody saying here? Um, we would love to have uh, lots of info. Yeah, I think she update today. Yeah, we would love, yeah, as Twinkle's saying, uh, Twinkle is a uh, Think Tank member. Yeah, would love to see you all in the Think Tank if you sign up on Patreon. We're always looking for new people with new ideas who want to bring something to the discussion there. Mary says, I don't, Mary Jane says, I don't like the blurred background. Sorry about that. Mary, Stacy got it. All right. Great episode. Marty says for the resolved episode, Stacy loves Zodiac. Marty says, gotta love Hollywood. Well, no, you don't, but I got you, Marty Rockford. Next. You'll tell us that Oliver Stone took liberties in the JFK movie. Look at you, Rockford. Uh, <laughs> Marty. Okay. So I, what I want to do is I want to concentrate with the Zodiac Killer. And by the way, I, a friend of Unfound, Ken Maines, who was a guest way back in 2017, uh, I know many, many of you know that he actually appeared on the History Channel to talk about the Zodiac Killer. Um, I do hope to talk to him about my ideas here sometime in the near future. He's a little busy right now, but I have emailed him, although I haven't given him any specifics. But tonight I am going to give you my specifics. I want to concentrate on the murder of Paul Stein. He was the taxi driver that was killed by the Zodiac Killer. And we know that because the Zodiac Killer took a piece of Paul Stein's clothing, a part of a shirt, and then eventually mailed it to uh, the prominent newspaper in San Francisco at the time. And that is that is true. That did happen uh, in real life, although they maybe exaggerated a little bit in the Zodiac movie, but that did happen. 
So we know that the Zodiac Killer did kill Paul Stein, this taxi driver, shot him in the back of the head. And Paul Stein was shot at the corner of Washington and Cherry in, and this is very important, in San Francisco. And there were witnesses, not necessarily to the shooting, but some children in a nearby uh, house saw the Zodiac Killer go to the front seat, do a couple things, and then walk away. Well, we now know what he was doing. He was taking part. He ripped off part of Paul Stein's shirt, took it as a memento that he eventually sent to a couple different people. But as is documented in the movie, actually, when they checked Paul Stein's book, actually, he was supposed to stop at the intersection of Washington and Maple. All right, so he's so he's driving on Washington, and he was supposed to stop at Maple Street, but instead he went one what would be one block farther. So he's going down Washington. He gets to Maple. He's supposed to stop there. Instead, they went down to Cherry, and that was where he was shot. And it's it's been a long time question. In fact, it's it's in the movie that. Why did that trip go one block farther? And the most popular idea has been that, well, the Zodiac Killer at that time had already decided he was going to kill Paul Stein, but maybe at that intersection there were people, there were other cars or something, and it was too risky. So he just told Paul Stein, you know what? Uh, You know what? It might be more convenient for me. Just go down to the next block. And that's what happened. And that very well may be true. We'll never know. We may never know. The history of the world, we may never know. But it's certainly true that the, the, the ride was supposed to stop at Washington, Washington and Maple. Instead, it went one block farther to Washington and Cherry. But I think everybody has missed something. And uh, it was just within the last couple of weeks, like I said, uh, I'll have the movie on here while I'm doing work. It's kind of just in the background. And sometimes like when I'm doing stuff, I really need it silent here, like when I'm writing. But there are other things like when I'm researching the disappearance for that week and maybe things like articles, like on newspapers.com, then the silence gets a little creepy. So I will put something on music or the TV and, you know, I play Zodiac quite a bit. And it just hit me one day. I think somebody is, we're missing something. Why did the Zodiac Killer pick Washington and Maple in the first place? Of all the places in all of San Francisco, now you should know we know where the the, the trip started. It started in Union Square, which is you know several miles away from where you know the destination was. We know we know exactly where Paul Stein picked up. The Zodiac Killer. We know that. That's documented. That was in the book back then. Of course, today with GPS, whether it's a taxi or Uber or Lyft, it's all GPS and everything. But back then, you had to write everything in a book, and that was written in the book that he picked this uh, passenger up at Union Square and um, was headed to Washington and Maple, and something happened in Washington and Maple. They went one block farther. But the question is, Why Washington and Maple? Now, the very, of course, simple answer is, well, you know, he just knew something, you know, maybe the Zodiac Killer knew somebody in the area, 
and everything else. What I did though, this is how I do things. I don't know if anybody's ever done this. And I want you to know, I Googled and I looked everywhere to try to find if anybody has come up with this idea. I could not find anything. I'm surely not a Zodiac killer expert. But just Googling it, trying different words in my, with my idea, could not find anything that anybody has ever brought this up. Well, it turns out that Washington and Mabel, Maple in San Francisco is unique. It's not just any other cross streets in San Francisco. How about that? It is very, very, very unique. In fact, it's the only type of intersection in all of San Francisco that has a particular thing. What are the odds of that? And you're wondering, what is that? I'm going to tell you that in a second. But it just, like I said, I got thinking... Why would he pick that intersection? It makes all the sense in the world that he, you know, he was thinking, I'm going to kill this guy, Washington and Maple. I'm going to walk off and I'm going to walk down here. And maybe he knew somebody. Maybe he was going to catch another taxi to get out of the area. Lots and lots of different ideas. But why Washington and Maple? Why not some other? Why not one block over this way, one block over this way? What was special about Washington and Maple? I'm going to tell you. Here is what I discovered about the intersection of Washington and Maple. And the reason it caught my attention is because I've already brought up something else, you know, in a previous talk on this live show about the uh, Zodiac killer in that, that he used a nine millimeter pistol to kill Paul Stein. Now he used different ammunition, different guns, different, different caliber for some of these other killings. But for Paul Stein, he used the nine millimeter. And what's not maybe totally understood is that nine millimeter in the United States was somewhat rare at the time. It's very common now. But it really, 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 really didn't get common until the 1980s. In the 60s into the 70s, the most popular ammunitions amongst the regular people were 38, 22s, 45s. 357s, nine millimeter was still very rare. And there really weren't that many guns in the United States that shot nine millimeter. In fact, very, very few American gun makers, manufacturers made anything in nine millimeter. Of course, now they all do. And that's their most popular kind of selling gun. But at the time, it was not the situation. The reason that is, is because 38 and 45 caliber, 357 caliber are all calibers that were invented in the United States. Nine millimeters, very important. Stay with me on this. Nine millimeter was invented in Austria, not the United States. And that's why it didn't get popular until later. And in fact, even we, it became very popular in Germany. And in fact, in World War II for the, of course, the German army, the Nazi army, that a lot of their machine guns and things, what were they? They were nine millimeter. Whereas uh, the Americans uh, and, and British were using 45 caliber. And I, you know, I'm not here to 
educate you all on, you know, gun calibers. But it's just important to remember that nine millimeter is not an American cartridge. Not even, you know, it was invented somewhere else. It's the most common ammunition, handgun ammunition in the United States now and has been for about 40 years. But it was invented in Austria, mainly used in Germany. And didn't become popular in the United States in the 1980s. However, Paul Stein was shot with a 9mm handgun, which had to have been very rare at that time in 1969. Now, where are you going with this? You were talking about the intersection. Well, at the corner of Washington Maple, the only house... And it's actually a landmark, almost they're trying to make it a landmark in San Francisco as I'm doing this show. The only house in the entire United States designed by German architect Eric Mendelssohn is at the corner of those two streets. How about that? The old, Eric Mendelssohn, you, he has his own Wikipedia page. You can look him up. Now, he designed other things in the United States. But at the corner of that intersection is the only house he ever designed in the United States. It was built in 1951. You should, should know that Eric Mendelssohn, though, died in 1954. He was a, a, a German Jew. His family had uh, immigrated to the United States. I think they had avoided the Holocaust, and I don't think they were ever in uh, a concentration camp. But there's more. So what are the odds? So putting this all together, Paul Stein is shot by a gun with a caliber that is essentially from Germany. It's Austria, but Austria and Germany at the time when that was – you know, they were one country, you know, at one time. It was that whole everything before, like, World War One. So he shot with a, essentially, a German caliber gun. And at the corner of that intersection, the only house in the United States designed by one of the most famous German architects of all time, the only house in the United States was on the corner of that intersection. But there's more. Not only did Eric Mendelssohn design that house that, it was, that was at the corner of that intersection, Eric Mendelssohn, although he was dead by the time the Zodiac Killer came around, he was actually a professor at Berkeley. So not only did he design a house, the only house in the United States that was in San Francisco – he was a professor at Cal Berkeley, which, of course, is in the San Francisco area, but he died in 1953. What are the odds? I would say, you know me, I don't like coincidences. You know how I, when we cover disappearances on Unfound, I shy away from coincidences. I'm all, you know, I, I'm a big believer in causation and correlation. And I just can't help but think that all of that is not a coincidence. That Paul Stein, and you should know something. 
Paul Stein, also German. Although he's in the United States, Stein is a German last name. German driver, German gun, German architect, German architect, who actually is at Cal Berkeley. I don't know what the odds of that are, but they sound, they would seem to me to be pretty, pretty, pretty unlikely. But I'll add something even more into this. I look at, of course, uh, many of you who know the Zodiac Killer know that he had these messages uh, that were sent to newspapers and, you know, these these cryptograms that people eventually figured out. In fact, they weren't really even that difficult, but they had mistakes in them. They were not perfect. Remember, uh, what's what's really stressed in the movie, and this was true in real life, is that the Zodiac Killer spelled Christmas with two S's at the end, so it's Christ Mass. And then... There were other, in the messages, there were some misspellings. Things that just kind of, um, you know, it'd it'd be like everything was correct, and then there'd be like mistakes, spelling mistakes, you know, just odd things. Odd spelling mistakes. And we know people make spelling mistakes. Not everybody, you know, is into spelling or anything, but they were somewhat odd mistakes. And you can go online anywhere and and find those messages and find what those mistakes were. So there's all that. And so I start thinking, well, probably most likely who would know who Eric Mendelssohn was? Probably a German. I'd never even heard of him until I discovered that house. Never heard of him. Maybe probably none of you have heard of him either. And it would take a unique type of person to know that that house was on that corner, probably. Remember, this is 1969. It's not something you could just go onto the internet and check out. So I start thinking, what are the odds that the Zodiac Killer, his first language wasn't English? We've got a German gun. We've got a German architect. And we got these misspellings in the messages, and I start thinking, could it just be that this guy's first language was not English? Uh, Because as I have it written in my notes, the Zodiac made very simple spelling errors and messages. And I realized a lot of people thought, well, is there like a message within the message? If we correct the spellings and take these letters Maybe it spells out something else, and I don't think any of that has ever worked out. Maybe the reason he misspelled those words is because English wasn't his first language, and he just made a mistake while putting the puzzle together. Just like any of us you know, would make a mistake if we don't know German or something. Um, this would also might explain why they seemingly do have DNA from the letters that the Zodiac sent to many, many different people. And could this be the reason that his DNA has never been matched to anybody? Because in the United States, all we seemingly have is DNA from Americans, and he was actually a German. 
And so there wouldn't be anybody here connected to him to use like 23andMe or Ancestry.com or whatever or Offram or whatever else because they only have access to DNA of people in the United States, whereas his DNA is actually from Germany. There's something to this. Maybe there's that. Maybe I'm just seeing what I want to see, but we just have to remember all, all of this stuff over the last 50 years has been gone over backwards, forwards, sideways, everything else. And it's gone nowhere. In fact, we got more people, you know, with, you know, kook thoughts yeah, my uncle was the Zodiac killer. Oh, this guy, other guy was a killer. It's kind of like with, um, uh, oh my goodness, can't think of it. D.B. Cooper, it's kind of like that. Now everybody, you know, uh, everybody thinks that they know who D.B. Cooper was. It's kind of gotten to be that way with uh, the Zodiac killer. Seriously, you go to Wikipedia, there's like, I don't know, five or six different guys besides Arthur Lee Allen mentioned as possible. They can't all have done it. And I realized uh, I talked about this maybe a year ago. There's this, you know, private group out there that thinks they have conclusive proof of who did, you know, who the Zodiac Killer was. But it's, it's surely they're just doing that for publicity for their group. They don't really have any, they don't have any special information at all. Um... It's just weird. What are the odds that he would ask Paul Stein, who is a German, to drive to an intersection where a very famous German architect designed the only house that this architect ever designed in the United States? And then on top of that, you have a gun which at the time in 1969 would be more classified as a German weapon than an American weapon. Of course, these days, it's certainly an American weapon. In fact, 9mm is a worldwide weapon now. But at the time, the way American culture would have looked at a 9mm would say, oh, that's kind of like a foreign cartridge. What the hell is that? And then on top of that, you have these mistakes in the actual writings of the Zodiac Killer. I got to tell you, this points to me more like a foreigner. Maybe somebody who eventually, of course, did move to the United States and became a citizen, but somebody who was born somewhere else in Europe and then came to this country and then when it was in a position to know about German culture regarding maybe German landmarks or something in the San Francisco area. No different than if we, you know, as Americans were, and I know we've got some Australians in here tonight, good day, um, were to go to Europe and we start looking at things that happened in World War II where American armies, you know, the Battle of the Bulge or whatever else, you know, we would go there because that's where American troops were, you know, 80 years ago or whatever else. Well, it would be the same thing for a German coming to the United States, getting to know significant German landmarks here. It's the same thing. So this is all going through my mind. I just, I, I was floored. When I found out that that intersection was very, not just unique to San Francisco, but unique to the entire United States. 
you know, and it was a German guy and the nine it was it was a moment. I had a moment. I'm still having a moment, probably. I really think that there's something to this. Hey, got you know, I, I really don't have the time to take it very far because of course my thing is disappearances and that's where I'm gonna stay. But I certainly believe that my insight into disappearances, because what what is the main thing about disappearances? You have a lot of unknowns. Uh, as I've said many times, uh, murders are like chess. Everything is in front of you. You know that the person is dead. You've caught the person is discovered in his home, in his car, on the street, at work, wherever, or her too. And you know probably what the murder weapon was. You may not have the murder weapon, but you know that this person was strangled, murdered, you know, shot, stabbed, whatever else. Murders are like chess in that all of the information is on the board. There are no secrets. You know what every piece does. You get your turn. The other person gets his or her turn. You get to figure out what you're going to do. There are no secrets. Whereas disappearances are like poker, and disappearances are what we call minimum information problems in that there is so much that is unknown, and we have to start to try to infer things. So when you're playing poker, it's one of those things, well, what does my opponent have? You're playing Texas Hold'em. What does my opponent have? But then it goes to, what does my opponent think I have? And so part of the thing about betting and everything regarding Texas Hold'em is making it seem like you have these two cards when you actually have two different cards. And that's how bluffing and everything works. It's all about minimum information because you don't know the cards that your opponent has. And you don't know what cards are going to be coming out on the board. There's a lot of secrets. Same way with disappearances. So... This is kind of the way that I decided to approach this. And just started thinking, well, what are all the possible reasons that he would want to go to uh, Washington and Maple instead of Washington and Cherry or whatever else? So that's what I wanted to pass along to all of you. You can choose to think that I'm crazy or not, but... Um, it's just it just seems to me all of this specifically German stuff just keeps coming up because I already had it in my head, you know what kind of American would have had uh essentially a German gun in nine millimeter in nineteen sixty nine not too many, not too many that's always been in my mind what what, what kind of person would, would choose to do that? Because 9mm ammo could not have been very plentiful in the United States at the time. So having a gun like that, you, you know, if you're going to go target shooting with it, good luck finding ammunition, more ammunition for it. Uh, of course, ammunition nine for 9mm these days, uh, you know, is plentiful as anything. And even if you go back, and I've been watching like old Hawaii Five-O episodes, you know, and usually Hollywood, although they get gun stuff wrong, a lot of the things they they do get right. And even when you watch Hawaii Five-0 with all the, the guns that they're carrying, they're carrying like 38 specials. You don't see – you don't even hear them bring up the term 9 millimeter when they're talking about bullet casings and everything. 
It never comes up. And that is a show that went from 1968 to 1980. Nine millimeter, never mentioned. But 38 is, 357 is, 45 caliber is, 223 and rifle or 556 is all mentioned. Those are all American calibers. Nine millimeter, never mentioned. Except the Zodiac Killer was using it in 1969. Uh, so it's Rockford. Do you think that if someone had seen that old newspaper article detailing the Dillinger's suffering arrest, it would have led to a dying fang uh, as a suspect? I don't think so, Rockford. I just don't think that's enough. I just don't think that that is enough. Now, it's, you know, going to the original Night Stalker, of course, there was a belief out there that the the, the original Night Stalker could be a police officer, and D'Angelo was at one time, certainly. But I don't think the shoplifting thing uh, would have been enough. There would have to have been a, a lot more than that. That might be one piece of information, but, man, you'd, I'd certainly need more than that. Uh, Marty says, Ken is great. Would love to see you collaborate. Trying to. Hello, Jody. What's going on? A Rockford, one block west of Cherry is Arguello, which is more of a main street that leads into the Presidio. I, 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 uh, like a week and a half ago, I was all over that map. So yes, Rockford, I know. Yes, right. Uh, is it near his house? Well, um, we don't know who the, the, the uh, Zodiac Killer is, so it's hard uh, to say. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, that's wild. Oh, I see where you're going now. Hazel says cold chills Rockford aside from the spelling mistakes. Did he make mistakes when it came to tense? It's very common to use the present tense interchangeably with the past tense in foreign languages. Uh, I have to look at, I have to go back and look at that Rockford. I did have a moment. Hazel. Hello, everything. Shelly, pretty cool. Great question. Rockford. That's insane. Stacy says very rare. Ed, good point. Yeah. So that's where my head is now. This would explain a lot of things. If this is right, that actually the Zodiac Killer was actually from another country. And I know they have his voice, you know, his recorded voice, and he called and 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 everything else. But, you know, I think that we've learned when it comes to uh, languages and things, it's much easier for people to um, speak a new language than master writing it. And if somebody's moving to the United States and uh, was much, maybe much more common then than it is now, people, uh, people who moved to the United States and become citizens back then, more likely to try to learn the language and to not have an accent and really try to sound you know, very American, you know, sound very like everybody sounds in Hollywood movies. That's a little different now. Um, I think people, they come to the United States. Of course, they, a lot of them already know English, but they're not laboring to get rid of their accents. We're much more um, accepting of that in the country now. But maybe in the 1950s and 60s, people moving here, they didn't want to sound like a foreigner. So they would really, really, really try to get rid of their accent wherever it was from very quickly. So all of you can kind of chew on that, uh, maybe go to the Wikipedia page and maybe do a little searching on the Zodiac Killer. And I urge you, certainly urge you to check out the movie and, and, and there's a site where it compares what they say in the movie as actually what happened in real life. 
because that movie really, really wants everybody to think that Arthur, Arthur Lee Allen uh, was the killer. And uh, you really look into it and really the evidence just isn't there. It just isn't. Uh, hello, uh, missing Christopher Douthat. How are you? Uh, why is the uh, blurry? Because that's a setting that I have on my camera. Uh, that's why that's not, that's no problem with you. Everything's working fine. That is something you'll see that as I move the blurriness, um, moves, just trying it out. That's why it is. It's something that I can, um, put into Streamyard the device, uh, the program that I use to now stream the live show, which I've been, um, using for a couple months now. It's me, Mary. I hope you're doing good, buddy. Hey, Mary, what's going on? Good to see, you, of course, everybody. That is uh, Mary, a past guest, very recent guest of Unfound. Um, everything's Ed's gotten technical. Yeah, okay. So there you go. Um, that is my Zodiac Killer insight. Do with it what you will. Uh, let's move on to the question for tonight, and that comes from Vicky. Vicky, are you out there? This is a very common question. A lot of you have heard me answer this question before, but because Vicky is new, I'm going to answer it. And once again, everybody, please give this uh, live show a thumbs up tonight. Do not forget to do that. We've got about a little over 45 minutes left, so please get in there and do that. Vicky asks, how did you get into doing the Unfound podcast? I just recently started your podcast from the beginning, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, I enjoy listening to it. Uh, Vicky, a lot of things came together. And first of all, I've always had an interest in disappearances. As long as I can remember going back to being a little kid, five years old, disappearances have already always fascinated me. And the way that I got to uh, kind of my first real introduction to disappearance as a kid was through the show In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Which, although today you look back at it, you know, it's still kind of, it's very 70s cool. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, you know, you know, cheesy now, but it's in, a, in its 70s way, kind of like leisure suits or disco. It's kind of cool in that way. Uh, although, of course, I now realize they did a lot of uh, exaggerating and lying on that show. But as a kid, you don't know that. And it was a popular show, a syndicated show at the time, maybe just because Leonard Nimoy hosted it. But that was my first um, introduction to disappearances because they do talk about Amelia Earhart and just mysteries of the world. And then I got older, and of course there was cops and unsolved mysteries. And then eventually, of course, the internet came along and – one of the first things that I started doing once I got the internet, I think started using, using the internet sometime probably in 1996. Got, got my first computer in 1996, I think so. And so I could get on to the local company at internet. And of course it was like, you know, with the, the telephone, you know, you know, the, the modem, you could hear the modem talking and all that through the telephone line or whatever. Remember that? Man, it seems like yesterday. And one of the first things I started doing was looking up uh, disappearances. And I, I can tell you, the first disappearance that I can remember really getting engaged in 
once I got the internet was Jody Husentrude, the disappearance of Jody Husentrude, because she had just gone missing in 1995. And so it was really, uh, everything came full circle on Unfound when I finally got to cover that as an episode. Uh, must have been in 2019 or 2020. It was really weird uh, thinking that that was when, like the first disappearance I ever got into when I started on the internet. And here I am, uh, what it had been almost 25 years later, um, covering her disappearance on a podcast on the internet, you know, which uh, it's just weird, really crazy. And then how the podcast came about, I guess the technology just kind of caught up with my interests caught up with my talents, come with the experience um, that I got over that time, public speaking experience, writing experience, audio recording, video recording experience that I got while I lived in Las Vegas. And it just kind of finally all uh, came together. But the you know, truth be known, I've been recording audio, just thoughts and things you know, that, uh, that going back, you know, that ended up in the, on the internet one way or the other going back to like 2006 or 2007, something like that. So, um, but unfound was the first, uh, recording and podcasting that I did that actually has become very, very, very prominent. And I, I think that's just the way it was meant to be that, uh, an interest that I had had since I was a little kid, finally, you know, got married to the technology and everything else. And that's, that's how it all came to be. I don't know what other, other people's uh, stories are probably very similar. Maybe if you went to ask, uh, John Lorden or some others, I I'm guessing it's somewhat similar. I, I, I'd be very surprised that people who have, who now devote so much time to, true crime podcasting are going to say that this is just something, you know, that I didn't really get into true crime and, and unsolved murders and everything uh, until last year. And I just started doing a podcast. I think that's rare. I think it's more along the lines of people um, got into it in some other way, took an interest in it some, in some other way through unsolved mysteries or whatever else. And then eventually, you know, uh, five years, 10 years down the line, started podcasting, something like that, I'm thinking. So that hopefully answers your question. Uh, everything says old dial-up 32 and 56K. Hey, I can remember everything when 56K kilobytes or whatever, does that kilobytes a second or whatever. I mean, that's that was like flying. You know, if you had 56K for your uh, internet um, connection, you just felt like you were in the Star Trek, you know, you were like 500 years in the future, like in Star Trek tech or something. I remember that. But I do remember when I first got cable internet, that was when I worked at Star Trek, or yeah, worked at Star Trek in about 2001, 2002. Uh, in Las Vegas. And I can remember just thinking, Oh my gosh, this is so fast. What is going, what is going on here? Suddenly a website that would take like 30 seconds to load would load in a second. It was so, it was so weird. 
I, I remember it like it was yesterday because I had regular dollop and uh, a couple guys uh, that I worked with there had cable internet and maybe they were already gaming on the internet or something like that. And they said, oh man, dude, you got to get cable. What are you doing? And it was just a mind blower. So I remember my first PC in 1999, Hazel says, missing. Uh, Mary says, I remember reading about Brandon Lawson. Did they ever solve his missing case? Well, I think they have, uh, Mary. They have, although it's not necessarily official. They've found remains uh, in the area where Brandon Lawson was, but um, have not necessarily been identified yet. But I think anybody who knows anything realizes that that it's Brandon and there wasn't any foul play. Uh, everything's, yeah, yeah, you had to wait to read your emails. Took ages, yep. Uh, I remember that. Sound of dollop is quite nostalgic to hear. Yeah, that, that, that sound. That's my best in, uh, version of that. Mark says, my first modem was 96 kilobytes per second. It took forever for even text to load. Yeah. I can remember the first email I ever got, which actually was in college. In like 1991, I can remember a friend of mine at another school sending me a message from his school to my school over a computer uh, like 1991, and I cannot even begin to tell you how much my mind was blown. I mean, that was just, that was like traveling spat faster than the speed of light back then. Just could not believe it. And, um, and then, but really the internet as we now know it today really did not get popular in my part of Pennsylvania until 1996. But I can remember... Uh, having a girlfriend in 1996, she went to New York City for something. And when she came back, she was telling me about how they were doing this thing in New York City now that they could talk to people and you could actually see the other person on the screen. That was like in New York City. Of course, cities usually get all this tech before the you know, the hinterlands do like where I was living in Pennsylvania at the time. She told me about going to New York city and being able to talk to somebody across town over the internet and being able to see, uh, the other person on the camera. And I, once again, I was thinking, this is, Star we are in the Star Trek days. This is Star Trek. Could not believe it. So, but I don't think I ended up being able to do that. I don't think that ended up happening until I was in Las Vegas, like when Skype came along or something. Um, but I can remember girlfriend at the time, her name was Janie, going to, La going to New York City when she came back because her mind was blown by it too. She goes, Ed, you're just not going to be able to even believe what the technology I experienced when I went to New York City, being able to see somebody I'm talking to. Them. It was crazy. Um, uh, Missing says, I liked your impression of the internet. Well, I'm not going to do it again, Mary. So that's the one and only time. Thanks. I always had said that I could live a whole life between page loads. That's funny. Twink, I remember the first time I heard the term mouse. Mark, I remember the old bulletin boards where I ever started using the internet would have to have been back in the early 90s. I remember those. And everything says, yeah, the Jetsons. Right. All right. So we're going, we're going nostalgia tonight. Usually we talk about music and stuff, but tonight we are um, 
going internet nostalgia. You never know what we're going to run into on this on this live show. All right, I got a, a couple things, uh, certainly two big topics, excuse me, that I want to cover before we are done tonight. I got 37 minutes. I want to talk about Crystal Rogers. Uh, I'm just going to first read the uh, what is still written on the Charlie Project about her disappearance. Then I will read what has been written in the news recently. Crystal uh, was last seen in Bardstown, Kentucky on July 3rd, 2015. She has never been heard from again. Her maroon four-door 2007 Chevy Impala was abandoned on July 5th near mile marker 14 on the Bluegrass Parkway in Hardin County near Elizabethtown. It had a flat tire and the doors were unlocked. Rogers keys, cellular phone purse, and other personal belongings were still inside it. And the phone's battery was dead. Rogers loved one said she rarely traveled to that area. Rogers living boyfriend, Brooks Hawk was the last person to see her. He stated that when he went to bed at 11 PM the night before uh, she was there and Rogers was still awake at the time and using her phone. When he woke up, she was gone. He said he wasn't initially concerned because they had a stressed relationship and Rogers would sometimes leave home and go stay with her cousin. He tried to call her on July 4th, but wasn't able to reach her. So uh, in September, and I think I went over this at the time, in September 2023, a Nelson County grand jury indicted a local man, Joseph Lawson, 32, on charges of conspiracy to commit murder and complicity in tampering with physical evidence. The indictment did not identify any victim but the dates given for the murder correspond to Roger's disappearance. Her relatives confirmed they had been notified of the indictment prior to it being made public. Now, if you don't remember what I said at the time, I'm going to tell you what I found interesting about this is that if you look at a lot that's been written about Crystal Rogers' disappearance over the years, and even on the Charlie Project and elsewhere, Joseph Lawson is not mentioned at all. So his name seemingly kind of popped up out of nowhere as being uh, a possible um, suspect in Crystal, Crystal's disappearance. So that's what I remember. Once again, uh, maybe it was a month ago that I talked about that when that story popped up. But now, and, and you'll remember maybe me also saying a, a question that I had at the time is that, okay, they charged this guy. He's at least partially partially responsible for Crystal's disappearance. And I start wondering, well, how many people does it take to make one woman disappear? Well, I guess we're finding that out. The, the most recent article from this past week is the boyfriend of Crystal Rogers and Kentucky mother of five who vanished in 2015 has been arrested and indicted on a murder charge in her killing court records show Brooks Hawk, was arrested without incident by FBI agents and the Kentucky State Police on charges stemming from the Rogers investigation. The original indictment has been sealed, but a redacted version filed last Wednesday in Nelson County Circuit Court indicates Hawk Hawk is accused of killing Rogers on July 3rd or 4th of 2015. In addition, he was indicted on a charge of tampering with physical evidence. An attorney for Hawk did not immediately respond to CNN's request for comment. Court records indicate Hawk is scheduled to be arraigned on October 5th when the FBI says more details in the case will be revealed. I guess that means I'll be talking about this next Monday, too. His bail is set at $10 million. 
Rogers was last seen or heard from on July 3rd, 2015. Her mother responded, reported Rogers missing two days later, and her car, a red Chevy Impala, was found abandoned with a flat tire in Bardstown some 40 miles southeast of Louisville or Louisville. Her car, uh, her keys, phone, and purse were inside. Hawk and Rogers had a stressed relationship at times. Hawk told CNN's sister network, HLN, in 2015, adding that he had cooperated with the investigation. You should note that Hawk uh, was a police officer at the time, uh, although I'm not sure that he was one recently. Hawk's family farm was among the locations searched during the investigation, Rogers' parents said at the time. But Hawk would not let the family on the property. They said, well, they surely are going to get to search that property now. Now, I'll go ahead and see what uh, everybody is saying here. Um, yeah, uh, Crystal uh, or uh, Twinkle brought up the first heard the term mouse. Yes, right. Uh, Twinkle. Yeah, you still need a double A batteries to power a kid's toy just like 1981, right? Hello, uh, Facebook user. Hi, hi to you. I don't know who you are. Everything. I watched the interrogations with the two brothers, Ed. Very interesting. And one is a cop. Yep, that's true. Good news for Crystal's family last week. Oh my God, I remember the games like table tennis. Yeah. Um, old nostalgic technology. Hawk's brother was a cop. All right. Thank you for correcting me everything. Of course, the big question I have is how many guys – I still have the same question. How many guys does it take to make one woman disappear? The reason I bring this up is because this is obviously, you know, uh, all of my categories uh, for disappearances. This is certainly a the man said type of disappearance. Man goes to, to bed uh, with a woman in his life. Wakes up the next morning, she's not there, and he doesn't know what happened, didn't hear her leave. Her car, of course, in this case, I guess her car is, but a lot of times, of course, the car is still there, the phone's still there, everything's still there. This one's at least a little different. And the car, of course, with Crystal, her car's found along the road, and I guess we're to believe that was all staged. But generally, in these kinds of the man-said types of disappearances, I think we are very much inclined to believe that one guy is responsible and that he did this all on his own. Of course, a lot of times we believe this is a spur of the moment type of situation. This is not something that was planned, although we might believe uh, at least a few of the disappearances of that category unfound were planned, but I think most of them point us more toward the idea that this was a crime of passion, something heat of the moment, a domestic abuse situation that, you know, it was a, maybe they had a troubled relationship anyway, as it seems that Brooks and Crystal did. And it goes that one step further. And then in an effort to cover it up, this guy just does it all on his own. And unfortunately, too many times they successfully pull these schemes off. It's horrible. And we know that there are many men that, who have been named on Unfound, who we've talked about, who are still to this day walking around free guys who um, never been charged with anything. This is very general. Of course, there are exceptions, but generally think just, you know, it's one guy. So this is the kind of the question I have 
with Crystal's disappearance, if we're to believe that Brooks Hawk is responsible and this Joseph Lawson guy was involved, and maybe also Brooks' brother, you know, and maybe other. What are we talking then about here? How did this all come to be that multiple guys got involved in what was probably started out as Brooks and Crystal having an argument? Something happens. Maybe she doesn't die right away, but he hits her or causes some injury to her that there's no way that's going to be able to be covered up. She's going to have to go to the hospital. He's going to get charged with domestic violence. And so then he decides to just take it the whole way. So what from that then leads to these other guys being involved? We just don't know that yet. I'm maybe, as it says here in a few days, I guess on October 5th, they're going to release more information. Did Brooks call this Joseph Lawson guy all distressed or something? Hey, it, it, it very well be that that's how this is all put together. But on the other hand, I think that in these types of disappearances, the reason that these guys pull them off so successfully is because it's left to just one person. And maybe that is the problem. Maybe that is what we're seeing here is that if we're to believe that Brooks killed Crystal and disposed of her body and staged the car out there, that the reason he's now being eventually, of course, it's been eight years. It's been some time that had he just done this all on his own, everybody would suspect that he killed Crystal, but they'd never be able to prove it. But being maybe that he did call this, uh, got Joseph Lawson involved and other people involved, maybe then that is what is now leading to the point that he is being charged, his other guys uh, got gotten charged, and maybe others are going to be charged as well. Maybe that's how we all need uh, you know, to look at this. That because... Brooks got other people involved is now the reason finally that these charges are being brought. There was just too many people talking, you know, maybe one of these guys who hasn't been named named yet has gotten in trouble for something else. And has said, you know what, if you give me uh, a break, I'll tell you what happened with Crystal Rogers disappearance that she was murdered. Very well could be. We may find that out eventually. But uh, for me as a person who studies this stuff, um, I really want to know why multiple guys were involved in this. When it seemed my perception is if we're to believe it went down like it seems that it went down, that Brooks and Crystal were alone there. Maybe the kids were there too. I don't know. I don't know where kids were. But you know, if something went wrong and he killed her, what was the motivation to get all of these other guys uh, involved. This would maybe be in contrast to like with Tyler North. It's obvious that his ex-wife was the one who instigated this, but she had to get her boyfriend involved and maybe he did it willingly just because, well, if uh, she kills Tyler, then, you know, in that park, what's she going to do? Is she, was she strong enough to throw him in her vehicle or something. It's I'm not saying there aren't women that can't do that, but it's rare. 
So the reason in that situation where she's certainly the instigator, the mastermind, she got somebody, a guy involved because she needed some muscle. Well, I'm not sure that that's, of course, the situation with Brooks. If he, in fact, did kill Crystal, I think that he could cause her to go missing all on his own. So that's why I'm just uh, you know, thinking out loud here about where my mind is on this, thinking about you know, how many guys exactly does it take to make one woman disappear? Because I think most of the time and the disappearances that we've covered on Unfound, that if we believe it's murder, we just think that one person did it. Now, it very well may be after the fact that other people find out. I don't know if they um, know enough to be indicted or anything like that. But you know, I'm certainly open to the idea that eventually other people, you know, find out for sure because this guy starts talking. But the actual disappearance itself, killing a, a woman, burying her, throwing, you know, or something—not to get too morbid here—usually that can just be done by one guy all on his own. Um. So uh, let me see. A good point at her phone and purse were at the home. Okay. Um, not good. Rockford, April Pitzer seemed to have a lot of men potentially involved too. Uh, certainly possible. At least that's, uh, the way her mother described it way back in 2017, Rockford. I'm still not sure about that. And, um, very well may be, uh, that's one that I have to, Admit, I, I know the general circumstances of her disappearance, her being out in California. Of course, her mother believed that could have something to do with some testimony that April had done in, in Arkansas. I'm not convinced of that, but could very much possibly be drugs involved. But, uh, of course, the, the real, uh, the, you know, the, the weird, quirky part about April Pitzer's disappearance is what actually happened to uh, a guy who everybody believes was responsible for disappearance. Him um, crashing in that plan with those other guys who are supposed to be going to Texas. The plane crashes in Colorado. That is still pretty wild. Um, Hazel, panic and contacts closest person for help. Could be regarding Brooks Hawk. Could be Hazel. Uh, everything. I think he's he, his brother, and Joseph helped him cover it up. I think that makes all the sense in the world, everything. I'm just wondering why Brooks chose to get them involved. Ed, you're thinking about it from a commit the perfect pers- uh, murder perspective, probably because uh, the reason I'm doing that, uh, Hazel, is because we know that so many people have gotten away with these disappearances. They have, at least to this point, pulled off the perfect Murders, so that's probably why my head's there. People with less brain power and not realizing it just ask for help. Sometimes. Uh, Bridegan Adelson, uh, thank you. Uh, Sheree, men are more more likely to need help. <laughs> Look at you, Sheree. Yeah, we certainly do need some help. So, um, that's what's on my mind regarding Crystal Rogers. Uh, I guess we uh, will maybe know more later this week. And if it's worth talking about, I will bring it up on the next live show. Um, And now I guess they'll have uh, access to that piece of property. And we'll see if they find anything. And 
I guess it's good that maybe that multiple people were involved. Maybe one will roll over on the others and, and all of this can get resolved, I guess. Uh, he did make it eight years so far. So, yeah, I know. Sheree, you're right. And just because all these people have been charged with something doesn't mean uh, that they'll get convicted. But uh, I, I think this is one of those where uh, I, I, my impression, once again, I'm not, I have not followed her disappearance very closely or anything. My impression is that this is what everybody thought anyway. I don't think there are any, uh, I don't think we're hearing anybody's hearing any surprises here, except for maybe Joseph Lawson's uh, name popping up, but Brooks Hawk, uh, you know, some of these other people, um, just don't get the idea that, uh, this is much of a surprise. Uh, what's interesting though, is of course, we still have that police officer who was shot in Bardstown while he is moving something off the road. And I've seen it out there that, some people saying, could that and Crystal Rogers' disappearance be connected? Could Brooks Hawk have done both? I don't know. All right, so that is Crystal Rogers. Now I want to talk about Suzanne Morphew. This, uh, once again, I realize uh, many of you have followed this closer than I have, but I think for everybody, this really, really, really came out of nowhere. The body of Colorado mom, Suzanne Morphy, was dumped in a remote area known as the Boneyard, where an aspiring Marine was found dead earlier this year and another woman went missing in May. James Montoya, 26, disappeared in early April after leaving a bar with two men the night before he was slated to meet with military recruiters, his mother, Carmen Montoya, said. His corpse was discovered in July near Moffitt, Colorado, during an unrelated search for Edna, Edna Quintana, who went missing in the same area in May. Investigators were continuing to look for Quintana last week when they found Morphew's remains in a shallow grave in Saguchi County. I know I just butchered that. Roughly 45 miles from her home. They're calling it the Boneyard because so many people are being located there, and it's such a secluded area, Montoya's mother told the outlet. She, she said she personally went to the isolated site after her child's remains were discovered. Um. Morphew, who lived with her husband, Barry, and their two kids, uh, daughters, vanished in May 2020 after setting out for a bike ride. Investigators discovered the bike discarded in a ditch near the house the day after she went missing. Both Barry and Suzanne had reportedly had affairs during their volatile marriage, and Suzanne told her spouse that the relationship was finished just days before she disappeared. Her husband became a prime suspect in the case and was hit with murder charges before the case was abandoned in April 2022 due to lack of evidence Morphew's body had not been located had not yet been located when he was initially charged landscaper's lawyer asserted last week that he had been a wrongful target in the case and that Morphew's demise could be linked to the other deaths and missing persons cases in the area it would be ludicrous for anyone to try to now fit the now-known facts to Pryor's false assumptions and accusations, Barry Morphew's lawyer said. Got a lot of lawyers. She argued that he was the most scrutinized, dissected, surveyed individual when his wife vanished, but has never been tied to the Moffat area. He fought a $15 million lawsuit against prosecutors in May that accused him of violating his, uh, he accused them of violating his constitutional rights. His legal team also accused prosecutors of withholding evidence in the case, including DNA from an unidentified man found on Suzanne Morphew's glove box that has been linked to a string of unsolved sexual assault cases 
in Chicago and Arizona. How many of you knew about that? Did any of you know about that? I, this, you know, once again, I realize some of you have followed this more than I have. I've been a little busy. But I'm going to read that again. His legal team also accused prosecutors of withholding evidence in the case, including DNA from an unidentified man found on Suzanne Morphew's glove box that has been linked to a string of unsolved sex assault cases in Chicago and Arizona. Um, Sheree, you've kind of been my go-to person on that. You're saying yes, that. Uh, so what is everybody thinking about that? Despite their marital strife, Bay has denied any involve- Barry has in- denied any involvement in- into his wife's disappearance and asserted they had a wonderful life and a wonderful marriage. So this DNA thing uh, seems to really throw a wrench into the belief that Barry did this, right? Uh, once again, I'm not the expert on all of this. I know some of you follow this day by day. Um, you know, when I do these stories, I'm just reading the story and maybe, you know, just giving my insight as a guy who disappearances for a living. Um, but what are you all thinking about this? You know, that sounds like something that's hard to get around people. But uh, as you type that out, for anybody who has uh, any insight into the DNA or an, uh, an opinion on that, uh, we have to remember it. This is another disappearance where remains are found by accident. So they go out looking for Edna. They find this guy. They go out looking for Edna again, and they find Suzanne, and Edna's still missing. That is crazy. That is really. Uh, I'm not saying it's never happened, but it's pretty rare. Although, uh, you know, I'm going to say in the last five years of doing this live show, I've talked about it at least once where, you know, they were looking for one person and found another. And uh, even, even in fact, when it came to that disappearance where they found the woman in the car down by Nova Southeastern University – that dive team was actually looking for somebody else when they found that car with that woman in it. So it does happen. But happening in the same area twice, gotta, gotta, gotta be really, really rare. Gotta be. So then I also start thinking, you know, are the, you know, is James Montoya, you know, connected to Suzanne Morphew? What kind of, you know, what are we then talking about here? Um, because, you know, I, am not, you know, what are the, I guess what I'm saying is what are the odds that somebody not connected to James Montoya or, or Edna Quintana, whoever that may be, Barry or whoever else would then choose to take Suzanne's remains to a spot. What are the odds that they would take the remains to a spot where some other killer or somebody also dumped a body that seems pretty unlikely seems pretty pretty unlikely it, you know we maybe then we start thinking about uh the gilgo beach killer or the long island serial killer uh rex Hoorman. 
what are the odds that two different killers would end up putting bodies in the, in the same area? Pretty, pretty unlikely. You have to start thinking that the same person did all of it. Now, what's also notable to me, though, is looking like I did into Edna Quintana's disappearance, although she might have been murdered. Of course, she hasn't been found yet. But it does seem that Edna had some things going on that could have caused her to just disappear all on her own. Unlike James Montoya, unlike Suzanne Morphew. Uh, Edna, did she have some health issues or mental health, physical issues, health issues or mental health issues? Um, of course, we know how they can certainly contribute to a disappearance. So what also all of you need to know, if you've not looked at any of this up on a map or anything, but Moffitt, where they found Suzanne, is in the opposite direction of where Barry was. A lot of people thinking Barry did this. Took her body, might have, um, you know, buried it in one of these places where he was working or something. Well, where he was allegedly at was in the opposite direction, and not just a little in the opposite direction, like it said in the article. Moffat is 40 some miles south of where the Morphews live. Whereas Barry, allegedly at the time of his wife's disappearance, was that same distance north. Of where they lived. Could he have traveled that distance? Sure. Maybe, you know, there, maybe in the timeline there is enough, you know, uh, dark area or unknown in the timeline. There's a big wide open space where Barry could have been traveling 40 miles south and going 40, you know, then going, I guess, 80 miles north. If that's possible, if you tell me it's possible, then it is. And I believe you. But. This certainly is the opposite of what I think a lot of people were thinking regarding Suzanne's disappearance, that if she were to be found, that she would be found around where they lived, or she would be found in the area where Barry was going for work or anything. It's neither of those places. So uh, this is all very, very interesting uh, to me. I don't know if this... I don't know if this makes Barry's claims that he's innocent stronger or weaker. We now, the thing is now we know that she's dead and we know that she was buried. So we now know that she was murdered. You know, this would be in difference. This would be in contrast to like Tom Brown, whose remains were, were not buried. In fact, they were found right on the top of the ground. Yeah. Very well may be that he's murdered. He was murdered, but when you find a remains just sitting out there and they're so decomposed, you can't tell what the cause of death was just sitting on the ground. It could be anything. Whereas when the when body's in the ground, then that's pretty self-explanatory. So we know that Suzanne Morphy was murdered. It's just by who, I guess what we're saying is we know that she didn't go off that day and go running off and kill herself or anything that did not happen. So what is everybody um, saying about the DNA and, uh, you know, where the location and, and everything else? Um, everything saying regarding Brooks Hawking, his brother, their inter interrogation on, are on YouTube. I found the interesting watching them. Okay, the mob used to use it. 
for their dumping ground, I guess, where, okay, where we're talking about for James Montoya and Susan Morphew. Interesting. Um, uh, yes, I had read about the unidentified DNA, Mark says. Sharice says, sounds like she got her car detailed at some point. All right, so Sharice thinking that the DNA was left with somebody who was cleaning her car, so whoever's working at that car wash uh, is a rapist. Okay, Sheree. That's interesting. That's very interesting, Sheree. Uh, he's lying. Barry admitted to being a true crime follower. I'm sure he knew about that burial site. Okay. Yes, that site goes way back for body dumping because he's not smart. Barry. Kathy, I'm still not convinced that Barry is not the killer uh, regarding the DNA. Thank you, Kathy. Everything. It was all It was all called that name because of mob dumping back in the day. All right, Sheree. Barry threatened to end his life when he heard Suzanne was done with their marriage. A lot of guys do that, I'm guessing. Sheree turned off his telematics to his vehicle for four hours, put his phone on airplane mode. He had plenty of time. All right, so Sheree is telling me plenty of time. Okay, Obinor, the guy went missing and found his car was found in Salida, where Suzanne was from. Look at you, Obinor. I don't know how to pronounce that, but uh, you must be new. Thank you for that. The guy went missing and was found, James Montoya. His car was found in Salida, where Suzanne was from. Well, what are the odds of that? Good one, Open Yard. Thank you for that. Good one. Hazel Barry, Barry did it evening before. Also possibly moved her after first disposal. Rockford, Mr. Forview gets a Brady rule violation in his favor and a DNA hit. Whether he did it or not, he's looking hard to convict to me. Sheree, no one saw Suzanne on Sunday except Barry. Mark, if I remember correctly, the electronic data from Chuck didn't ever put him close to where his body was discovered. Uh, Sheree is saying that data was turned off. Sheree also voted for Suzanne while she was missing. How did he know she wouldn't vote wherever he was? Yeah, they that I remember that coming up. So Sheree, and we know how credible Barry is not. Yes, close enough. Okay. All right, so I guess what we're saying here is that um, – there certainly was time for Barry to kill his wife and go 40 miles south and bury her and then go 40 miles north. Um, and uh, and being that, as some of you are saying, it was a well-known dumping ground at, at some point for the mob. I guess maybe may Barry being from that area, he might know that. And so he's thinking... This is where I'm going to put her, make it look like somebody else did it. It's dumping ground anyway. Okay. And then as far as the DNA inside the car, I guess what Shree is saying is that there is some uh, detailer at a car wash in Chicago, Arizona, who's now in Colorado, uh, who's working on cars, and this person is actually a rapist and he needs to be caught. That's really interesting. I'm not saying that's true, but I think that's what Sheree's trying to say that, you know, some people are going to think, well, that really rules out Barry. Well, not if she had gotten her car washed and detailed and somebody there uh, actually was the rapist and just hadn't been caught yet. But what are the odds, I guess? What are the odds that a rapist from Chicago, I guess, Illinois and Arizona is then in Colorado and he just happens to clean Suzanne's car, and then she goes missing. That is something. That is something. Uh, Shree, it's definitely not easy, but it's logical. Too many things point in Barry's direction for me personally. Good thing he has a nice defense. Uh, his defense, uh, 
he's certainly getting his money's worth, uh, I guess is what we would say. Uh, Sheree, he's certainly getting his money's worth. Facts notwithstanding, the prosecution has made mistakes it can't afford, and the defense got lucky if the DNA angle pans out, which I want to study before I buy. Yeah, you would think that if that you know, if that's true, that this DNA has been linked to these rapists, I mean, they they got to figure that out. And I think that Shree brings up a good point. Makes sense. Guy's working on the inside of the car and leaves some DNA there. Maybe they can track this uh, rapist down. Of course, on the other hand, maybe we should think of it this way. Just putting this out there. She gets her car uh, done at that car wash, and that guy who's cleaning her car decides to stalk her. She's there by herself. Maybe he hears her talking to somebody about how her marriage, she's getting out of her marriage or something. And this guy, being that he has access to her car and going in her glove box, can look at the address, know her full name and everything. How about that? Possible. Something to think about. Sheree, I bought a used car. No telling whose DNA is in there, but I've been single for years. Me too, Sheree. Everything, it's good they have DNA anyway to track whoever down. Yeah, that guy got to get caught too. So, developments. Um, I guess I then have to ask the question, uh, and then we'll get to the final part of this live show tonight. If this was known as a burial ground, I'm wondering why they just didn't go to that area first. I know it's 40 miles away, but. I'm wondering if this was known in the area as being a burial ground for bodies. I'm wondering why they didn't go down there looking for Suzanne in the first place. Maybe it's just a rhetorical question. Uh, yeah, Rockford says, I'd hate to be a prosecutor trying to explain the DNA unless the rapist is nailed with no doubt whatsoever. It's true. Mark, you are 100% correct, Rockford. I don't know if Barry did or he didn't, but prosecution sought themselves in the foot by not properly turning over discovery. Sure, he doesn't help the state, but she didn't go missing from her car or bike. They lived in a very upscale rural area. Of course, he could have stalked her, but he pissed off. Her pissed off husband was right. It's really deep, Ed. Very deep. It is deep. Deep thoughts, like that old uh, Saturday Night Live skit. Deep thoughts. Uh, the, the turning off the tracking devices, uh, certainly true, Sheree, but then, you know, it's one of those things, Sheree, wouldn't Barry know that they would check that? I mean, maybe it's just totally stupid, totally, totally stupid, totally, 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 totally stupid. But is he really that stupid? Maybe. All right, moving <laughs> no, 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 deep where the bodies are dumped. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. All right, everything. All right, this Friday. Speaking of convoluted cases, speaking of possible murder, speaking of a lot of information, speaking, speaking of, speaking of, speaking of, speaking of, speaking of, that is certainly the situation for this Friday's disappearance. The disappearance of John Spira, S-P-I-R-A. He disappeared on February 23rd of 2007. 
from Chicago, Illinois. His sister, Stephanie McNeil, is the guest. This is a disappearance uh, that got a four-parter on True Crime Daily, although they really only covered the generalities. Of course, we had unfound. We go into the deep nooks and crannies of disappearances, but you may want to check the True Crime Daily uh, four-parter out anyway for preparation for Friday. John uh, was in the midst of a divorce. He uh, was in a business with a guy that he had known for 18 years, but maybe things weren't going so smoothly. It was a Friday evening. John was at work. He was supposed to meet somebody at 8.30 for dinner. He never showed up for that dinner. His vehicle, a Ford Excursion, which is one of those huge SUVs, kind of like a Suburban, but Ford doesn't make them anymore. His Excursion was found at his office, but was parked in the back, which is weird because when John had parked his vehicle that day, it actually parked at the front of the building, not the back. But when they finally went back to find out where he was, it was parked in the back of the building. And the keys for that vehicle are still missing, as is John and his phone, his wallet, his idea, etc. And uh, his wife has an alibi of his soon-to-be ex-wife has an alibi of being at home. But there are a lot of questions regarding John's business partner, Dave Steuben, S-T-U-B-B-E-N, because it seems that Dave, Dave's story about that evening seems to clash with a couple other people who were in the building at the same time. We've got a lot to go over uh, for this disappearance. And the weird thing about this disappearance is John, by all accounts, was like the nicest guy ever. But <laughs> there were a lot of strange actions by many people around him. And the problem is that surely not all of them caused John's disappearance. At least four different people acted really strangely after John's disappearance, but none of these people knew each other. So that's going to be this Friday. It's going to be a two-parter. I'm started making uh, episodes into two parts. When the, when the interview goes over two hours, I've started doing that just to see what happens, just to see how people like it. And this interview went for like two and a half hours, so it's going to be a two-parter. Of course, they'll both come out at the same time. And I'm calling this episode risky business on uh, the latter. I don't think you could turn off the telematics on a car, but they are all messed up. Uh, speaking of back to the Morphew case, Lisa, I was going to quote deep thoughts when you talk about singing, but it was inappropriate. That's funny. Open your, thank you. And I'm calling in tonight. All right. Good seeing you open your, I don't need know if I've seen you in chat before, but thank you for that piece of info. Jasmine says John Spears disappearance was on disappearance. As well. All right. Very good. Thank you. Well, check that out if anybody can on disappearing as well, because uh, it'll be a nice uh, warm up for what, of course, be the most in depth and in depth and uh, complete coverage of John's disappearance. That'll be this Friday. So that's it. Uh, Chicago movie reference. <laughs> yes. And uh, thank you, everybody. Please give this video a thumbs up before you leave. Give it a nice review if you're listening in the podcast. And you will hear me on Friday.
And thank you all for taking time out of your Monday night to watch this live. And uh, Charlie, say hi to the kids for me. Good night. <laughs>